Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. When you stand up in prayer, you should know it for certain that your God has the power to do all that He wills. Then your prayer will be accepted and you will behold the wonders of God's power that we have beheld. Our testimony is based on seeing and is not a mere tale. How should the supplication of a person be accepted? And how should he have the courage to pray at the time of great difficulties when according to him, he is opposed by the law of nature? Unless he believes that God has power over everything. You should not be like that. Your God is one who has suspended numberless stars without any support and who has created heaven and earth from nothing. And would you think so ill of him as to imagine that your objective is beyond his power? Such thinking will frustrate you. Our God possesses numberless wonders, but only those observe them who become wholly his with certainty and fidelity. He does not disclose his powers to those who do not believe in his powers and are not faithful to him. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, the 25th of February, 2024. Its time now is 10.05. The Weekend World Show on Voice of Islam with us and Ahmadi. You can listen to Voice of Islam on DAB radio, mobile and online 24 hours a day. Broadcasting live from the Beth of Fatou Mosque in Morden, the Weekend World Show is a current affair show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and spirituality. 
a message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views or stories by phoning us on 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests and not necessarily of the uh, their Muslim community. My co-host, as ever, is Waleed Ahmed. Waleed is the Chief Librarian at the Battle for Two Mosque, UK's largest mosque, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of the Abdiya Bulletin publication. Good morning and salam alaikum, Waleed. Peace and blessings to you. I hope you are well. Well, Islam, yes, very well. Pleased that you're back. Yes, I was going to say, I hope you survive in, <laughs> in my absence. No, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. <laughs> Is that right? I did, I, I did throw you in the deep end and, yes. and left everything to you. And uh, uh, from what I've gathered, mashallah, a wonderful show it was, uh, yes. even without me. So maybe this could become a habit. Yes, hmm. uh, I was, uh, uh, yes, I fell victim to three politicians. Oh, right. uh, <laughs> Your own on. doing. <laughs> yes, they came on to the show uh, yeah. uh, together. Okay. Uh, yes, and uh, yes, they had their say <laughs> on, on what, I, well, what I was doing and uh, what uh, was going on. Right. In the, uh, was it anything uh, like uh, the vote in, <laughs> in the House of Commons no. on Gaza? Was it on that level? <laughs> Fortunately, no. no. no we, we're very civilised. Oh, yes. very good. Uh, well, we, we'll discuss some of that uh, antics of the House mm. of Commons later in the show. Uh, but I just want to start, I was looking at uh, the, the news this week and uh, I suddenly looked at uh, uh, the news in general. Mm. And on the page you see this, you know, Huddersfield family ripped apart by knife crime twice in the same week. Several youths involved in this knife crime. Uh, another that was from Yorkshire Live by BBC reports. Heverell mum starts campaign over knife crime sentences. Again, youths are involved. Uh, it's on our doorstep. Bristol's fearful parents seek answers after three knives. Parents were worried about their youngsters. Uh, that was in The Guardian. And then Leeds Live, Leeds City College confirmed knife crime incident has student rushed to hospital. And, you know, I recall uh, that we're remembering the second caliph at the moment, um, a great prophecy which we'll be discussing later in the show. And one of the things he said, Mr. Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed, he was the elder son of the promised Messiah, as a mm. Mr. Ghulam Ahmed. He became the second caliph. And uh, during his tenure as the caliph, one of the things he said, he said, a nation cannot be reformed without reformation of the youth. Mm. I think that's a quite a prophetic yes. statement by him and uh, something with great insight because one of the things we suffer from today and, and these headlines from the newspaper seem to indicate that is that uh, when the youth are left without guidance, uh, without authority, without uh, support, then uh, society breaks down. Mm. And this is a sad indictment on the society. How prophetic do you think these words of the second Halif were? Well, they're very, they're very profound, like you said, and uh, very true. And I think that uh, um, it shows the the insight of uh, the second Caliph into mm. uh, issues like this. And uh, the fact is, and that's why one of the reasons why he set up uh, Khudam Al-Amdiya, the, the organization, organization for the youth. Yes. 
because one of the things not only set it up it was run by the youth as yes, well yes? yes that's what it was designed to do so it gave them a sense of belonging and that's what uh, youths uh, very much uh, crave for mm. something to belong and so so rather than joining gangs or uh, indulging in crime or indulging in drugs uh, they're given a sense getting of indulge in no direction basically yes, yeah they're g- getting uh, inducted into an organization mm. that is uh, promoting yeah. positive activities and mm. we have this to this day yeah so that's why these kind of issues are not uh, as uh, um, faced by by members of the amdiamus committee as as they are in the in the rest of society this is exactly what i was thinking mm. that within the amdiamus community those who attach themselves with the community mm. get involved with yes. the activities because there's guidance there's mm. this leadership there mm. there's there's support there mm. they will tend to stay within i mean we we grew up in it yeah. and sometimes when you grow up in it you sometimes don't see how the others look upon you mm. uh, but now that we're out of the youth organization we look at our youth i go to the mosque and i see the works that the youth are doing and the way they're activating the youth into mm. positive thinking mm. uh, I, i i then realize how important these organization was mm. and, and the second caliph certainly showed uh, that vision and mm. and then for me this statement a you uh, nations cannot Uh, nations cannot be reformed without the reformation of the youth. It's, yeah, it's very true. And I, I just want to, I'm not going to try to blow my own trumpet, but no. I, I do remember uh, only recently, um, two years ago, um, a non-Ahmadi Muslim, a young non-Ahmadi Muslim, saying he wanted to be, uh, join the community because of the activities that youth were engaged in. Mm. That's why he wanted, and he did join the community. Mashallah. And he's become yeah. a, become... Uh, a member of the community yeah. but the the thing that attracted him was not uh, dogma yeah. or doctrine yeah. it was the way that uh, the youth of the community behaved yeah. in positive activities and mm. he wanted to be a part of that one of the criticisms i hear from non ahmadis especially if you go on the internet nowadays we've got a lot of access uh, because ahmadiyat by the grace of god has spread far and wide particularly in west africa or in african countries we just had the 100th uh, uh, centenary of the community in ghana for example and uh, w- one of the things they accuse is that all oh, the, Af- the africans they they can't even read or do they they don't know what the promise was i said you just uh, brainwash them into believing this and into believing that I mean one what a negative thought about the african people <laughs> number one yes. and number two i remember the fourth caliph when he visited africa he, he came back and he said and this is the point that you are making is that uh, he found in the african people that that when they saw the truth or they felt confident in someone that was enough for them mm. you didn't have to go into the detailed dogmas or yes. the or the or the discussions over this and that mm. or whether this is right or what he said and what mm. he has said if you get caught up in that you'll never mm-hmm. see the truth mm-hmm. anyway mm-hmm. uh, and that was the uh, the the hallmark of the african people mm-hmm. truth was enough yeah, yeah. yeah? honesty yeah. was enough mm. and mm. i see that quite often anyway mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway lots to discuss on the show mm. uh what have, what are we going to be discussing today Well, um, we will lead uh, with a news review, looking at some of the key news uh, stories of the week with Dr. Iqbal, uh, giving us his views and thoughts on some of the top stories. Um, and uh, we will also be joined by Councillor Peter Lamb, uh, the prospective Labour candidate for Crawley at the next general election. 
And this will be followed by Faith in Focus segment, continuing our uh, in-depth look at the life and character of, and claims of the founder of the community, the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, and focusing our attention on this prophecy that we're commemorating this week, mm. the um, uh, prophecy of the Muslim, uh, of, the, uh, of the Promised Reformer. Okay, uh, in- interesting. Uh, P- uh, we're hoping to get Peter Lamb, the councillor, on because he is due to appear on TV as well. Uh, ah. So we hope there's no clash there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's expected to be there before he comes on our show. Yes. So. He will, I'm sure he'll give priority to us. Oh, yes. sure he will. <laughs> we are, after all, the voice of Islam, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yes. Uh, what about after the 11 o'clock news? Well, uh, we're asked the Imam segment with Daniel Kalam and look at the prophecy about the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community with hopefully a detailed account on how that prophecy was fulfilled in the person of Mr. Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed and detail some of the great achievements during his caliphate and also some of the challenges he faced. Indeed, that'll be a very interesting segment. It'll be a longer segment than normal that we have with uh, Daniel, mm-hmm. um, but I'm sure it'll be interesting. Any sports today? Yes, uh, we, Shahid will be joining us once again and uh, he'll be giving us updates on the Premiership, uh, Test Cricket and possibly the PSL, uh, Pakistan Super League, which is now attracting great audiences and starts from around the globe. And stars, I, I, I think that was, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. A lot of stars from all over the country and okay. world are now joining in after many years of absence uh, of boycotting, visiting Pakistan. So okay. great, great news for Pakistan there. Pity about what is happening with the elections and the stability of the country. Uh, the, yes. the, we can just pray that um, mm-hmm. God guide them into uh, having decent uh, leaders. Uh, interesting, I hope, uh, thought-provoking sh- uh, show in store for our listeners, uh, inshallah. Uh, God willing. Uh, anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by joining us on 0208-687-7878. And um, uh, you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile or live stream at voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show with us and Ahmadi. The views on the show of the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Uh, right, Raleigh, we're going to go move to our first segment of the show, uh, which is the news review. Um, the first uh, headline I'm going to read out is uh, Khan hits out on morally rotten Tories for PM's failure to condemn Anderson's racist rants. This is from The Independent. Uh, what else do they say? Well, Sadeen Khan has lashed out at uh, Rishi Sunak's tacit endorsement of Lee Anderson's uh, racist GB rant, a GB News rant, which saw him suspended from the Conservative Party. The London's mayor uh, said Mr. Anderson's belated suspension showed that Muslims are fair game as far as the Conservative Party is concerned. Mr. Anderson, who quit as Deputy Tory Chairman last month, had the Conservative Whip suspended for claiming Islamists have got control of Mr. Khan. Yes, uh, the article continues that Tory Chief Whip Simon Hart said he was suspended not for the comments themselves, but for the refusal to apologise. Seems a very strange comment to me. (laughs) The comment is not acceptable, but the apology is more important. Mm. Uh, And Mr Khan said it is time for the Tories to stop the moral rot of anti-Muslim hatred in the party. Mr Khan said blatant anti-Muslim hatred is being tolerated from top to bottom of the party, with everyone from ministers to mayoral candidates failing to condemn even the most clear-cut examples of bigotry and racism. 
In, what else did he say? Well, he said that in the last uh, week alone, this is uh, Sadi Khan saying, yeah. uh, we've seen the last uh, Tory Prime Minister promoting dangerous conspiracy theories. This is Liz Truss, uh, the last last Tory Home Secretary peddling uh, far-right troops, that's well, uh, Breverman, and the last Deputy Chair of the party targeting me for no other reason than my faith and race. Yet we had days of silence from the Tories. Mr. Khan said Islamophobia has gone through the roof since the Hamas attacks in, in, Israel, on, in Israel on on the 7th of October. Yes, we're going to listen to a couple of clips. Um, first of all, what Lee Anderson said. Lee Anderson's comments may have compromised your safety and security. I'm quite clear from uh, the police officers I've spoken to from the organizations that work with Muslim communities across the country, we've seen a massive increase in Islamophobia, anti-Muslim hatred over the last few months. It isn't just about my security, my family's security, my staff's security. It's about the people across our country who are at the receiving end of racism, of anti-Muslim hatred, and of Islamophobia. Racism is racism. I'm unclear why Rishi Sunak, why members of his cabinet aren't calling this out and aren't condemn this. It's like they're complicit in this sort of uh, racism. And I think the message it sends is Muslims are fair game when it comes to racism and anti-Muslim hatred. It's not good enough in 2024 in the United Kingdom. Do you think Muslim... Uh, that was Sadiq Khan, sorry, uh, mm. uh, commenting on what Lee Anderson has said. And very quickly, uh, this is what Lee Anderson has said. Well, let's go now to the former deputy chair of the Conservative Party, Lee Anderson, of course, MP for Ashfield. Lee, you no doubt heard that conversation there. People are absolutely furious in, 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 the, in the views we're getting in today, Lee. Here's a typical comment from Audrey after the scenes on Wednesday outside Parliament and inside. Martin, I don't recognise our once great country anymore. Joanne says this, Martin, this country will never recover its identity. It's about time we sent the army in to sort this mess out on our streets. Shocking, Martin. I mean, I was there, as you know, on, on Wednesday night. We could hear the commotion outside, and this is down to we've got a very cowardly Khan um, running London. He's uh, He seems to be letting the, uh, not only the Jewish population down, but the old population of London and Britain as a whole. And I heard the comments here, I heard the comments earlier you was making about Suella, some of the comments she made earlier this week. And I don't actually believe that these Islamists have got control of our country, but what I do believe is they've got control of Khan and they've got control of London and they've got control of Storm as well. And we've seen the shocking scenes played out in Parliament. So that was what the Anderson has said, and then and we heard the reaction from Sadiq Khan. I think Sadiq Khan has come out uh, always speaks up very well. I think in these occasions, and I think one thing you cannot accuse him of of being <laughs> controlled by Islamists. He certainly yeah. does what's best for London in his yes. view. Yeah. Uh, and he, remember, he doesn't make these decisions just on his own. Mm. He has a big organisation yeah. around him and mm. most of them aren't Muslims in mm. that organisation. And he can't tell the police what to do. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing that was uh, that emerged. Yes. That as if he was he was instructing police as to how they should police uh, police London, police these marches. Exactly. Although he is automatically the commissioner, I think, the yes. mayor of the police, he, yes. he does not tell the police what to yes. do. They, yeah. they only report to him of yes. what they've done yes. and he holds them account, yeah. accountable for what, mm -hmm. what's going on. So mm -hmm. that's about it. Mm. Anyway, uh, joining us this morning, as ever, is our... Uh, from, from Bradford is Dr. Iqbal. 
Dr. Iqbal is a presenter on Islam, uh, on the uh, on the Voice of Islam. Uh, he, uh, so, I'm sorry, I just lost my notes here. Uh, but uh, good morning, Dr. Iqbal. Oh, Dr. Iqbal, can you hear? Can you hear us? Uh, okay, uh, he's supposed to join us from Bradford. Dr. Ibal is a keen ex-contributor, uh, ex is formerly Twitter, uh, mm. a political commentator, uh, following his uh, politics, and also a presenter on Living History on The Voice of Islam show. Mm. Uh, Dr. Ibal, can you hear us now? Hello. Oh, sorry, right. We can hear you now, Dr. Ibal. Sorry about that. So now I can hear you perfectly well. Fantastic. Sorry about that. Uh, Dr. Iqbal, uh, we just re uh, read the story about the accusation that Sadiq Khan is being controlled by Islamists. And uh, as a result of that, Lee Anderson, who made those comments, um, has been uh, take, uh, been removed from his position uh, or, or been removed of the Tory whip. Uh, what do you make of the story? And has Britain become an open place of Muslim hate? I was really shocked, uh, son, uh, during all this. There uh, was the comments of uh, Lee Anderson, Suella Breverman, in the article that she wrote. And also, and these are interlinked as well, and also what happened in the House of Commons with Starmer uh, uh, in what he did. Yeah. And um, I have to say, I have been very impressed with the way Sadiq Khan has come out fighting uh, and uh, putting the record straight. And it was also good that uh, Rishi Sunak uh, took the step to take the whip away from uh, Lee Anderson. It did take a bit of time, and I understand from my readings and hearing things from the media that he was in some ways forced by some senior mm. uh, ex-cabinet members, including Sajid Javed uh, as well. Um, and that was an important thing to be done. But... Uh, Prior to this happening, if I'm honest with you, uh, son, I was extremely worried. First time in my life, mm. I have been really, really, really worried at what is going on in relation to what is being said and done to the broader Muslim community in, in the UK. And uh, at least when this step was taken, uh, I was a bit relieved that, uh, um, you know, they're drawing a line. However... There is Suella, whose article is even worse than Lee uh, uh, Anderson's uh, in terms of accusing the whole government, not just Sadiq Khan as mayor of London, mm. in creating this problem. So clearly things are being whipped up in political circles, oh. in the media, and, uh, you know, it, it's worrying for us and our children. Mm. I, I was going to say that uh, this is not the first time Suella Braverman has said something on those lines um she said it before she she tends to whip up uh, a division within within britain uh as a home secretary it becomes highly irresponsible uh and when i read the report from tel mama who in a recent report uh, only a few days ago outlined the seriousness stating that muslim hate in the uk has 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 more than tripled in the four months since Hamas attacks, a charity has founded, this is Tal Mama, they have documented 2010 Islamophobic incidences uh, between 7th October and 7th February, a steep rise of 600, it's recorded. Now, the question that comes to my mind is that uh, Anderson has been removed. Uh, Swella Breverman 
no action because she's the one who started this uh, this round of uh, attacking uh, the mayor and uh, attacking Muslims. Why why nothing done on that? Is there a bit of hypocrisy going on within the Tory party? I think there's definitely hypocrisy going on. Uh, Suella Braverman is trying to outdo Enoch Powell, to be honest. I mean, relatively, you could say Enoch Powell was a saint in terms of right-wing politics. Yeah. Uh, she is, you know, a hundred times worse. And I think it's been done, done deliberately, and it's because they're trying to attack the vulnerability of Sunak and they're using her as the canon, the right wing of the party. And I think she has ambitions, obviously, for wanting to go um, back into maybe the premiership uh, challenge, etc. So it is being done deliberately. I think the right wing of the party... Uh, are um, trying to steer their agenda uh, very much to the right. Britain has moved so much to the right that it's frightening in terms of political um, leadership and political commentary. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I think Rishi is a little bit frightened of uh, doing something. But if they don't, as Baroness uh, Said of RC uh, was saying, take uh, you know firm action against people like that, it's going to damage... Well, I hope it will damage the Tory party if they don't do that. But on the other hand, though, and I have to say, it's not just about the Tory party. Keir Starmer has got no ground to stand on. What he did, in a sense, he opened the gates, really, in targeting the Muslim community. Because by doing what he did in that uh, vote for um, the ceasefire in Bal- he basically targeted the Muslim community. And, of course, there are lots of others who were involved in those marches in London for the ceasefire. But ultimately, he was targeting the Muslim community. And even even in uh, getting uh, Lee Anderson uh, sacked, did you notice there was hardly anybody senior, senior from Labour who made any comments? And yet they should have been in the forefront in the media in saying that the you know, mayor of London said the colleague, our colleague is being attacked. I know some Labour people did, as some Tory bear members criticised. But mm. so I'm afraid it's uh, looking pretty bad for the broader Muslim community in the UK at the moment with yeah. both Labour and the Tories. Okay. Uh, Dr. Iqbal, uh, I've got uh, someone joining us uh, in the discussion, uh, Peter Lamb. He's a councillor at uh, Crowley Borough Council. He's also the Labour candidate, uh, prospective candidate for the next elections. Uh, welcome, uh, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we were just talking to Dr. Iqbal about uh, Lee Anderson and what uh, and the Tory whip been taken away from him. And the second question was that um, uh, why hasn't Suella Breverman any action been taken on her? Because she's the one who sort of instigates some of these anti-Islamic rhetoric. Um, your thoughts on, uh, on on what happened uh, with the, the attacks on uh, Sadiq Khan and uh, the after effects of that? The whole time that Sadiq has been mayor of London, he's come under very regular fire from members of the far right, which unfortunately very often includes members of the Conservative Party, sometimes in the most senior uh, roles imaginable. Mm. Uh, it certainly does include Suella Bravman, who, of course, was removed after enormous amounts of pressure had to be put on the Conservative Party to do so uh, as Home Secretary. But we also have the, the last Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Liz Truss, in America, helping to stir up similar anti-Islam uh, sentiments over there. Um, and just to, to come up on the comment about the Labour Party not commenting on it, um, mm. Keir Starmer issued a, a pretty clear statement yesterday calling for resignation of, uh, well, for the removal of Lee Anderson uh, yeah. amongst uh, and uh, Liz Truss. I mean, 
We've had the chair of the Labour Party. We've had a number of senior figures talking in the last uh, 48 hours about that appearance in the United States. We are witnessing, and I think it's not a surprise to any of your callers, uh, a significant increase in anti-Muslim rhetoric over recent years, uh, which is already a very high level. Um, And, you know, it's just adding more fuel to a fire uh, that, that... poses a very significant risk, I think, to communities everywhere. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the key roles of the Home Secretary is to ensure there is there is uh, decorum in, in society, there's peace in society, there's no division in society, and this Home Secretary just keeps on coming up with comments which are going to divide the nation and not unite them. Would you agree with that? I, I think much of what's happening in the Conservative Party at the moment isn't actually about the country at large. It's about who is going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party after the general election. Hmm. And unfortunately, that means appealing to Conservative Party members. And unfortunately, Conservative Party members tend to have much, much reactionary viewpoints compared to to that of the wider public. Hmm. So you are witnessing a rise of this. It's going to get worse, I'm afraid, because this is how people are going to to position themselves for more senior positions within the Conservative leadership, or in some cases like Lee Anderson, trying to ensure that reform won't run against them at the general election. This is what they'll cover. Uh, Dr. Iqbal, I mean, we, like you, I, I'm sure if you remember back in the 70s, we grew up uh, under quite a bit of uh, racist approach in society. Uh, if you remember the skinheads and, and the likes, we, they used to attack people of Pakistani origin, but it was the skin colour, not not the origin of where they came from. Uh, but it was from a, a, a group of people, the far right thinkers, and and maybe Enoch Powell and a few cohorts. But today's a- attacks on Islam and Muslims tends to be from politicians. Is that uh, is that? Do you see that distinction from the seventies and now, or or there's similarity? What happened in the seventies? No, I, I think there's a stark difference. Um, I still believe overall British people are some of the nicest people in that they have changed tremendously mm. over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. And yes, I do remember those, and they were, that was based on ignorance, etc. But, you know, um, a lot has happened, and the general public, I think, have gone to appreciate some of the positive contributions made by Muslims and Asians and other ethnic minorities. But sadly, our political environment has changed terribly badly, particularly targeting the Muslims. And that's based on international politics as well as ideology, theological discussions, Mm. etc. And that is extremely worrying because the problem is that Islam and Muslims are dehumanized because of Middle Eastern politics. That's a reality, whether one wants to understand that or not. And the professor that was sacked by Bristol University made that point clearly, and he's one of the experts on what has been happening to the Muslim community. Peter Orban, one of the best, I believe, journalists this country has had, also make these points very clearly. But again, he has been sort of uh, made an outcast from British journalism, etc. So the problem at the moment is that Islam and Muslims are being targeted specifically both for historical reasons and geopolitical reasons, and therefore it's going to affect us badly here. And if people like the Islam and the Labour Party don't recognise this and are honest about it, Mm. I think things are going to get even worse. We have to understand that the Tory party is manipulated by the right-wing media, and that's very difficult to challenge. But if our Labour Party cannot understand the problems we are facing and the unfairness of the international debate, then I really think it's uh, politically. But, you know, the British people still, I have hope in them. I think they are very decent people, and I hope that uh, 
the Labour Party will understand, especially the younger people, but we will see. Sure. Uh, Peter, I mean, uh, uh, just what uh, Dr. Iqbal has just said, I, I was giving a talk to a school a few months back, and one of the things I said to them, I was telling them about my upbringing in Britain, is that, yes, we face racism, but uh, the British people was the most welcoming people and uh, felt very safe generally in Britain. Uh, it, Britain as a state was never uh, was never uh, racist, but some individuals were. And that happens in every society. Uh, do you, f- I know you wouldn't have lived through those 1970s. You might not have been born like I was. <laughs> You're a lot younger than me. Uh, but uh, do, do you think uh, that our concerns, uh, the, the immigration population in Britain has has concerns uh, over, over what's happening in Britain today? I mean, I, I think there's a lot to, to what has been said. I mean, the, the the reality is that, you know, living in, the, in a diverse town like Crawley, um, you know, overwhelmingly, most people get on with most other people. Um, you know, you grow up in schools and, you know, certainly when I was going to school, we had a very diverse population at my school. It's just part of, you know, who the community are and you have friends across any number of sort of religious and ethnic divides is, is just part of your identity. Mm. The, the risk of things like immigration is it allows the far right um, to play games to separate people. So the overwhelming majority of the British public will not uh, discriminate against someone directly. Mm. There's an awful lot of indirect discrimination um, in terms of the way they approach politics, but you can allow the far right in in a way where they're able to start building that up to be more overt um, discrimination. Now, the debate around immigration, frankly, is incredibly unhelpful um, because it's not actually looking at the whole picture. Yeah. Um, and while obviously there's a lot of concern at the moment about illegal immigration, about how to ensure a country has safe borders, and I think there's a perfectly justifiable argument to say why is it that a country is incapable of ensuring that it has strong borders. When considering immigration in the rounds, we do have to think about the UK has got an ageing population. The largest population, uh, the largest age group in our entire history has just retired. Uh, and that is going to put an increasing amount of uh, the economic burden on younger age groups, of which there are less than there have tended to be in the past. Uh, certainly in percentage terms, there are far fewer. And if we don't want to allow immigration in the UK, you can resolve that. But the way you resolve that is by having far later retirement, uh, by having to bring far more of the labour force into uh, work and by increasing productivity. And we're seeing none of the signs really needed to do any of those things. So at the moment, we're having this debate around immigration as if migrants were a huge cost to the UK state, and they're not. Not you know overwhelmingly, the evidence is that they they make a significant uh, economic contribution. Even if, like in Crawley right now, we're having a lot of difficulty with the concentration of people uh, that have been put in in a very short period of time in hotels. Um, overwhelmingly, you have to have a much uh, better view of, of sort of labour market flexibility. Mm-hmm. You know, if the country is actually going to thrive economically. I'm sure we'll discuss more on the politics of it when the election comes around and we'll have you on the show for that as well. Believe you wanted to ask a question. No, I wanted to ask Dr. Iqbal. Um, um, Sadiq Khan also alluded to a hierarchy of uh, racism and uh, how they, how it's treated. And Andy Burnham today on uh, Laura Koonsberg was saying that if these uh, remarks that were uttered by Mr. Anderson had been addressed to the Jewish community, the reaction would be very different. Very different. Do you think there is a, a hierarchy in the way that we react to racism in this country? Um, I believe I'm sort of losing the sound a little bit, so uh, I don't know if you can hear me clearly. We can. can. you hear me okay? We can. Hello? We can hear you. 
We can yeah, hear. So, we can hear you. So basically, I, I think Sadiq Khan is uh, correct in this um, because at the moment, um, as he uh, himself said, at the moment it seems that it's fair game to criticize, challenge, and insult. Muslims compared to any other uh, ethnic minority or uh, you know religious uh, group, uh, etc. And uh, as I said, no, I'm I'm quite active on Twitter, and I've also said that it's a, it's a sort of open season, uh, hunting season on Muslims by anyone. And and uh, again, I I would refer listeners to Peter Ogon's commentary and uh, articles, etc. He's saying exactly the same. He's never seen such uh, an unfair coverage in the media and commentary by politicians. Mm. So it does seem that the, the, the Muslim community is being targeted, and a lot of that is to do with the uh, international developments that are going on. And as I said, historical uh, as well. Um, you don't get the same criticisms of any other community compared to the Muslim. Now, of course, there are elements within the Muslim community, sadly, in this yes. country and elsewhere as mm. well, that uh, do some really silly and bad things and say bad things. But, you know, that's uh, part and parcel of all. Look at the extremists within Israel or um, even in the Western world or look at... Uh, um, you know, other communities as well. But yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, it's extremely worrying, yeah. I think. Uh, Peter, just uh, on, on this point, um, I, I went on a couple of the marches uh, for Palestine, and uh, when I walked, I walked with uh, mostly English indigenous people who were on the march. They, they were the majority, I thought. Uh, I, I walked with several Jewish groups, uh, on the march, calling for peace in in Palestine, and yet the media highlights the the three or four arrests that were made, or a handful of arrests that were made, uh, out of the hundreds of thousands of people who attended, uh, as if to say that these are you know this is where Suella Breverman was trying to ban marches, etc. The media doesn't help either, and is it playing? to the cause of someone and, and also on Wednesday's vote Lindsay Hoyle made the comment about he wanted the safety of the MPs who, from attacks from terrorists that didn't help either and it allowed Anderson to make the comment that he did I mean the, the media's coverage has never been um, particularly balanced on a lot of these issues I mean I think there are a number of papers and journalistic uh, outfits which do but there are some which definitely have a narrative around a lot of them um it is natural uh, frankly from a, a media perspective to always focus on what are kind of the negative aspects of any activity so if there's a protest it will always focus on violence um rather than on you know the overwhelming number of people sure. who have come out to people peacefully express the sentiment yeah i mean it, it does feel as though um muslim protests get or protesting sympathy of of, of causes that muslims are, are closely identified with do get a far higher uh, level of, of criticism by a number of outfits. Mm. On, on the issue of extremism, look, we've had two MPs who have been killed. One was by someone who claimed that they were acting on the basis of, of Islam, and of course they're not. They're asking on the basis of their own personal uh, beliefs, which may, you know, they may choose to identify that way, but it's, it's not an accurate depiction of a much larger part of the population. One was was a, a white extremist, yeah. you know, about... Uh, now, I don't in any way think that the, the person who's, who's white and acting on the basis of trying to, from what he believes, preserve his racial status mm. is speaking on my behalf or anyone else. 
But we do have to acknowledge that people like that exist. Ex- absolutely. And, and where exactly. they exist, that we have to, to we have to act accordingly. And condemn them, and condemn whichever party they, 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 they represent. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you know, we have, yeah, we have to be very careful with how these phrase these things. But mm. the risks do exist from extremist groups. The risk is it's because they're extremists and not because of whatever happened, whatever their ideology or, or belief system happens to be. Um, now, you know, why Lindsay Hoyt took the decision he did, I don't know. That's, that's entirely up to him and what information he may well have had. Again, I, I do not know. Mm. But I would just say that, you know, the debate around this is focused on entirely the process and not the fact that we've actually managed to get a call for a ceasefire through Parliament, something yeah. which never looked like it was on the cards at the start of the week. And if you read the Conservative Amendment, which would have gone through if it had been tabled first, we would not have a ceasefire call from the Parliament right now. OK, uh, well, the SNP are now uh, apparently being given another opportunity. It's to be confirmed yet. Uh, but let's hope that the, that vote does take place without the fiasco that took place on Wednesday and that all parties uh, respect that the opposi- opposition day uh, is for the opposition to present their, uh, their, their, their tabling their uh, proposal uh, and that vote does take place peacefully. Thank you very much for joining me, uh, Dr. Iqbal. Thank you very much for your thoughts and views and highlighting some very important points. And uh, Councillor Peter Lamb, good luck with your uh, election to the forthcoming and as always, great contributions. I remember you Thank coming you. to the Crowley Mosque and uh, calling for a ceasefire while your leader was not calling for a ceasefire. So that was very brave of you and thank you very much thank you very much thank you Peter right Walid so much to discuss. It is, yes. <laughs> and we touched the t- tip of the iceberg. And we, didn't, we didn't even go into the other topics that we wanted to. Yes. And we ran over time, yes. leaving you less time than Doesn't we matter. No, no, I think it's, it's very important um, to have discussed this. Yeah. And we could have discussed this, like you said, for another hour. It is a very important issue. And we Indeed. Could, there was so yeah. much to, to yeah. cover in yeah. that. And uh, we only touched the uh, iceberg yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, of that. Anyway, faith in uh, focus questions now. Uh, we have been reviewing the life of the promised Messiah early episodes and in keeping with the week we are commemorating one of the great prophecies we'll be focusing our attention on that prophecy the prophecy of the promised reformer the promised son Mm. Uh, what precisely now this is about a prophecy made by Mirza Ghulam Ahmed about a son that was promised to him yes okay Uh, lots in that uh, yeah. to decipher mm-hmm. and to understand. So what precisely is the prophecy about and why is it so important? Well, um, it is uh, a prophecy, like you said, of the promised reformer, promised son. Um, and uh, it was a prophecy that was made by the founder of the community, Hazrat Mizah Ghulam, the promised Messiah. He made it on the 20th of February, 1886, when he told the world that God Almighty had informed him that he would be blessed with a son, not any ordinary son, but a son who would accomplish outstanding work in the service of Islam and in perpetuating uh, the mission that he had been raised for. And here it is important uh, to remind ourselves that when we celebrate this particular prophecy, and we do that on the 20th of February each year, it is the fulfillment of the prophecy we are commemorating. Uh, it's not the birthday of anyone or the birthday of the man in whose this prophecy was fulfilled, mm. but the day when this prophecy was made. And uh, it is a remarkable prophecy um, because the founder of the community, the promised Messiah, to whom this prophecy was um, revealed, said that this is not only a prophecy but also grand 
heavenly sign which has been manifested by God to demonstrate the truth and greatness of our noble prophet, the compassionate and merciful Muhammad, the chosen one. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. This sign is in fact hundreds of times superior and more potent and majestic and glorious than the sign of bringing a dead person back to life. So this is what the founder of the community said. Um, and so Chaudhry Zafullah Khan, a leading uh, member of the community, uh, was now passed away, but he wrote that this was the greatest sign that was ever delivered in the his, in history, apart from those signs manifested to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. So it was some prophecy, and the promise was I also explained that the prophecy was not personal to anyone as such, rather it was to do with the second phase of Islam. This prophecy uh, was a sign of the truthfulness of the promised Messiah, the founder of the community, who was sent to revive Islam after his true teachings were distorted and his followers had lost sight of the true purpose of the creation. So the prophecy was far-reaching in more ways than one. So Mm. it was very important. And in fact, there was a link regarding this prophecy in the Holy Quran and the sayings of the Holy Prophet. Uh, What are those links? Well, yes, the link is that when the verse, there's a verse that we often quote, it's in chapter 62, um, and it says that um, I believe. Yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah, and yeah. he it says that he will raise uh, him among others of them who have not yet joined them he is the mighty the wise so uh, who are these people that are going to be raised uh, uh, who have not yet joined so his companion asked uh, uh, the meaning and the holy prophet peace be upon him uh, placed his hand on one of his companions he, uh, his name was Salman uh, and on, on his shoulders he lay, laid his hand and he said that if faith were to go up to the Pleiades, a man or men from among these would surely bring it back. So in other words, a, a non-Arab, uh, he had to be um, from of Persian descent, so presumably could also be somebody from Persian descent, but essentially non-Arab. And the ultimate fulfillment of this verse came in the person of the founder of the community, the promised Messiah, a prophet sent by God Almighty. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, also foretold that the promised Messiah will marry and have children. And so the first part of the, is the Quranic verse, where it was explained that when Islam has disappeared on earth in its true sense, someone from the yeah. progeny of the Holy Prophet will descend. So that's one part of the prophet. And that person who descends, mm. the Holy Prophet about him says that he will marry and will mm. have children. So, uh, yes, I, I think you, you made a slip up there. Okay. It's not the progeny of the Holy Prophet. It's the progeny of somebody, the, of a non-Arab. Of a non-Arab. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So yes, you meant yeah. that. Sorry. Yes, yeah. Thank that, you. For I knew you yeah. meant that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. So in case we got calls. No, no, no. Exactly. Well. No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I don't want to save you from that. Anyway. So, <laughs> yes. So the, the second aspect was uh, that he would, he would marry and have children. And so indicated uh, in this is that um, that uh, what is said is that the secret that Allah does not give glad tidings to prophets or saints regarding their pro- progeny unless mm. he has decreed the birth of righteous progeny. Right. So this is an indication that he will be blessed with the evil children okay. and that will assist him in his mission. So we've covered the importance of the prophecy but tell us the, the background how this prophecy came about. Well we know that prior to 1886 the, the uh, promised Messiah had demonstrated the truthfulness of, his, Islam, mm. of uh, so Islam. He made the claim that he's the promised uh, Messiah, he's the reformer, uh, people need evidence. Yeah. So people were not satisfied, they needed more more evidence. Naturally. So in response, the promised Messiah turned to God Almighty and under divine guidance, he traveled to a place called Husharpur. Uh, this was on the 22nd of January, 
1886. They found a place to stay for a while. It was known as an outbuilding, which was used as a temporary place to stay, and not an actual dwelling. In fact, it was an additional uh, building of an annex, if you like, um, used occasionally so that guests may stay who arrive unexpectedly, or which was used to store uh, as a store, or if need be, uh, to accommodate animals. Uh, in other words, it was a, an additional room, but in a very austere setting. So it was in these simple and humble surroundings that the promised Messiah chose to spend 40 days in prayers, meditation, and devotion. It's known as the Chilla. And it was at the end of this period that he announced that the favor that Allah had blessed him with in the form of his prophecy. And the prophecy, as mentioned, was of a promised son who was to be born within nine years. That son was Hazrat Mirza Bishiruddin Mahmud Ahmed. We'll learn more about him, uh, I'm sure, later on. He was born within three years uh, on 12th January. And his achievements very clearly proved that he was that son and therefore the subject of his prophecy. Um, and uh, let me just, just share what the promised son had said about this. He said that yeah. an, unknown, an unknown individual from Kadian, who even the people of Kadian were not fully acquainted with, came here in Sharpur upon witnessing the enmity people harbored towards Islam and the founder of Islam. He came in order to worship his Lord in seclusion and seek a sign of his help and succor. He spent 40 days in seclusion from others and supplicated before his Lord. After 40 days of supplications, God gave him a sign that I will not only fulfill the promises I made to you of spreading your name to the corners of the earth, but in order to fulfill this in an even more splendid manner, I will bless you with a son who will possess certain qualities. He will spread Islam to the corners of the earth, explain to the people the verities of the Holy Quran. He will be a sign of mercy and grace, and he will be endowed with the religious and secular knowledge that is essential for the propagation of Islam. Moreover, Allah the Almighty will grant him a long life, so much so that his fame will spread to the corners of the earth. So this is what was uh, said by the incumbent, the person who was the fulfillment of that. And uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, the reaction... Uh, yes. of the opponents of the promised Messiah learning this prophecy. What was that? Well, um, yes, uh, what do you expect? Well, yeah, they, there is a lot litany of criticisms. In mm. fact, when this announcement was published, the opponents started raising a series of objections. Subsequently, uh, the promised Messiah published another announcement on the 22nd of March, 1886, that dealt with those objections. So the opponents raised the objection that how can such a prophecy be deemed reliable which states that a son will be born to him. Uh, do other people not have sons? In fact, there might be exceptional ca cases uh, where a person is not granted a son or who is only granted daughters. But these are exceptional. Otherwise, it is common for one to have a son and never is this birth declared to be a particular sign. Mm. Hence, even if a son was born to him, why would it prove that a particular sign of God Almighty had been manifested in the world through this means? Reply to this it's objection. It's a fair objection, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes okay. But uh, the promised precise wrote mm -hmm. that this is not merely a prophecy but a magnificent heavenly sign which God, the benevolent and most sublime, manifested uh, in order to establish the truth and grandeur of a, uh, of a benevolent, kind and merciful prophet the Holy Prophet's uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And the point is that if the promised Messiah had simply proclaimed to have a son, mm. even then it would have been considered a prophecy in its own right because there are people in the world, even 
though there may be very few who do not have any children at all. Secondly, the promised Messiah was over 50 years of age when he made this announcement. Oh. There are thousands of people in the world who cannot have children after the age of 50. Also, there are some who only have girls. Then there are some who may not have a son, but the child passes away or may have a son, but the child passes away shortly after his birth. All these conditions also apply to the promised Messiah as well. Thus, firstly, no individual has the power to predict the birth of a son. Even if this objection is accepted, the promised Messiah stated, if even if one were to accept the fact that predicting the birth of a son cannot be deemed as a prophecy, however, the question arises, then when did I share the news of only a son being born? I did not simply claim that a boy will be born to me. Rather, I stated that God Almighty had accepted my supplication and he promised me to send a blessed spirit which, uh, internal, uh, whose internal and external blessing will spread throughout the world. So it's more than just the birth of a son. It, it, it was not the prophecy of mm. a son being born. No. It was the qualities that he will yeah, have. That absolutely. is what the real... And so those who want to criticize will oversee the main objective of the prophecy, yes. um, of the sign, and, and concentrate on what would be... A minor thing, mm. which is what they no, seem to be absolutely. doing. Yeah. What about uh, some claim that the prophecy was regarding the birth of a son in the future progeny of the promised Messiah, perhaps even three or four hundred years later, implying that it was wrong for Hazrat Bashir Mahmud Ahmad, who later claimed mm. that he was that promised son, because uh, the promised Messiah never said that that he was that son. Hmm. Well, the answer to this was also given by by uh, uh, by uh, the promised son himself. He the says that Hadith, yeah. yes, he said that Pandit Lekhram, Munshi Enderman uh, Murad Abadi, and the Hindu Sukhadian were saying that to claim that the God of Islam has the power to show the world a sign is false and baseless. If there was any truth to this claim, a sign should be shown to them. As the promised Messiah submitted before God Almighty, supplicating, O oh God, I pray to you uh, that you manifest to me a sign of your mercy. Grant me a sign of your might and nearness. Hence, this sign must surely have been manifested and had to be manifested in the very near future, while those people who demanded it were still alive. Thus, thi thus this is what came to pass. When I was born, uh, this is the promised son saying, mm -hmm. in 1889, in accordance with the divine prophecy, those who had asked for a sign of the promised Messiah were still alive. Hence, as I grew older, more and more signs of God Almighty continued to be ma manifested. So what he was trying to say is that it is futile when somebody is asking for a sign that that sign should be manifested three or four hundred years afterwards mm. when they have long gone. Mm. The only uh, reasonable expectation is, if that prayer is answered for a sign, that that sign will be manifested during the lifetimes or during the likely lifetimes of those people who are seeking it. Mm. So it was. Uh, so it was a. Uh, what is it? Uh, it had to be uh, something that hap needed to happen immediately, rather than three hundred, four hundred years later. And and if let's say it was to come three hundred, four hundred years later, mm. as some were trying to say. Surely, uh, 300, 400 years later, the people were said, 
Well, he said a son would be born to him. <laughs> and so, the, you know, yes. he, yeah, you can't win. Yeah. Between the hard yeah. place and the rock, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why yeah. these people are concerned with the yeah. Just one last question. Mm. Uh, what was the promised Messiah himself? What did he say when responding to this objection that the prophecy was to be fulfilled three or four hundred years well, later? Well, uh, he explained that one of the purposes of the prophecy is that people may know that God is mighty and does what he wills. It is worthy to note, and this is a quote from uh, what he wrote. He said, it is worthy to note that how could people understand God to be mighty if it is assumed that his sign will be manifested three to four hundred years later, through which they will be compelled to accept that the God of Islam is mighty. How can Pandit Lehram give this prophecy any importance? Furthermore, how could the conclusive argument be made to those who were criticizing Islam in that time, deeming the signs of the Holy Prophet to be false and claiming that Islam as a religion was dead, if only after 300 or 400 years they were to understand that God Almighty is all-powerful. How could the fulfillment of this prophecy after 400 years convince them that God is mighty? They would say that they cannot accept the verbal claims that this uh, shall come to pass after 400 years. In fact, anyone can make such a claim, but the true significance of this is when a sign is actually shown at the time and it is proven that the God of Islam is indeed mighty and powerful. So this is why the sign was meant to be fulfilled at that time. At that time. And another question that comes out of it very quickly, Willie, mm-hmm. is that the promised uh, Messiah uh, gave uh, had a son prior to the second caliphs, mm-hmm. uh, and those people, or many of the, those who objected that it would happen three, 400 years ago, actually made accusations that a son is born and he just died, Therefore, your prophecy has failed. So they were already saying that it's going to happen during his Absolutely. lifetime. Bashir the first, yes, he was born. Um, um, I think it's in 1888 or 18, yes, 1888, and he he died. Yes, he died after after a few months. And, and many claim, no, see, you, your yes, prophecy is proven yes, wrong, right? Yes, yes. So you, as I said, you can't win no, you can't <laughs> with win. those who who, yes. who want to doubt. Yes, and uh, as the Quran says, they can. Those who disbelieve continue to disbelieve because yeah. their hearts have been hardened. Yes, so those who are sincere can see through the truth. Yeah. But those who are insincere will always find objections yeah. and criticisms yeah. to reject. Right, we'll join. We'll come back uh, with our Ask the Imam segment at uh, after the news, after the eleven o'clock news. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu. Welcome back to the Voice of Islam. This is the Weekend World Show with Asa Ahmadi. If anyone who wishes to contribute can do so by phoning us on 0208 687 7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The Voice of Islam show on DAB radio, mobile and live, live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. The Weekend World Show with Asana Amdi. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Right, welcome back. Uh, I hope you've been enjoying our discussions. We are now going to go to the next segment of the show, Ask the Imam, but we are covering the life 
uh, and achievements of the second caliph uh, of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and the prophecy of the promised Messiah, which Walid earlier described in detail of how that came about. Uh, we'll start with the verse of the Holy Quran. هُنَالِكَ دَعَا زَكَرِيَّا رَبَّهُ قَالَ رَبِّ هَبْ لِي مِنْ لَدُنْكَ ذُرِّيَّةً طَيِّبَةً إِنَّكَ سَمِيعُ الدُّعَاءِ Chapter 3, verse 39, Allah says, There and then did Zachariah pray to his Lord, saying, My Lord, grant me from thyself pure offspring. Surely thou art the hearer of prayer. Uh, this is signs that Allah gives to prophets, that they are given pious progenies, and several prophets have given these sort of signs, and Zachariah being one. And uh, we just heard from Ali that how the promised Messiah was also given this uh, great sign. Now, uh, the Holy Prophet Walid, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, had given the glad tidings of the advent of a spiritual, pious and promised son of the Mahdi, which you uh, pointed out from this mm. hadith, at a time when Islam would be at a stage of decline and depression, uh, he had prophesied that he would come with a mission to revive and strengthen the Islamic theology, and through him Islam would resurge on the surface of the earth. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, called the spiritual son as the Muslim reformer, the, the, hence why we call him the Muslim out, the, the, the promised reformer, and the promised one. Uh, what did the Holy Prophet say about him? Uh, the, 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 what did the promised Messiah say? Well, the, well, the promised Messiah, well, he, it was said that the promised Messiah shall marry and will have children. Right. And uh, this was an indication that this marriage would be of a special nature. And through this, Allah shall grant him such children, that is the promised Messiah, such children, as would be assisting and cooperating in carrying on his mission. And right. thus, when, he, when, when uh, came the time of the promised Messiah and the advent of the promised son, Allah revealed to the promised Messiah further details of this prophecy with happy tidings of his ascendance, advancement and achievements. Okay, right. We're going to listen to a, a short clip about uh, how that uh, prophecy was fulfilled. As mentioned earlier, Hazrat Masih Maudar Islam traveled to Musharrafah on January 2nd, 1886 to perform Chilla, which is 40 days in seclusion. All this time was spent in intense meditation, devotion and prayer. This resulted in God Almighty giving him the news of a grand prophecy, which is referred to as the prophecy of Musimaud. According to this prophecy, Allah will bestow upon him a son in the next nine years who would bring awesome progress to Islam and Ahmadiyyat. This promise was a reformer would spread the message of Islam to farthest corners of the earth. A part of the prophecy states that he will be a light anointed by Allah, a divine sign. His fame will spread to the ends of the earth. He will be filled with secular and spiritual knowledge. He is the world, world, word of Allah for Allah's mercy and honor has equipped him with the word of majesty. He will be extremely intelligent and understanding. No ordinary person could predict that would bear a son who would become famous the world over. Yet the promised Messiah made this prophecy and predicted that the child would be born within a period of nine years. 
So that was a brief introduction about the prophecy. Uh, joining us for this segment is our young Imam, Daniel Kalun. He studied and completed his seven-year training at the Islamic Seminary and Educational Institute here in the UK and regularly presents on MTA TV and contributes in articles uh, in the Ahmadiyya Muslim publication Al-Hakam. Assalamu uh, alaikum, Daniel. Wa alaikum salam, I hope I've got your facts right. You have, actually. <laughs> <laughs> now, now coming to facts, let's put you to test. Let's, get, let's see you getting our facts uh, for our listeners. Let's do this. Uh, Willie just talked about the prophecy, how it came about, how the promised Messiah... Uh, went into a chilla, forty days and forty nights of praise, and through which this prophecy was made, uh, and uh, and he was talking about some of the accusations uh, that came about. People thought it would happen three or four hundred years ago later. It doesn't make sense, but you know, that's what people would, uh, were making accusation. Did the promised Messiah uh, himself announce which son the prophecy was about? No, he didn't. So here's the thing. Um, the words of the prophecy, uh, they refer to a son yes. or someone from his progeny. Right? Okay. Um, it doesn't specifically say who that son will be. It says that his name will be Emmanuel Bashir. Um, but if you look at it, there's actually two parts of the prophecy. Um, if I may just read out hmm. those two parts, Please. I think that would be beneficial. So the prophecy goes, and I quote, Rejoice, therefore, that a handsome and pure boy will be bestowed on you. You will receive an unble unblemished youth who will be of your seed and will be of your progeny. A handsome and pure boy is coming as your guest. His name is Emmanuel and also Bashir. He has been invested with the spirit of holiness and he's free from all impurity. And then it, the prophecy goes on. The point I'm trying to make here is yeah. that, so the first child that was born to the promised Messiah after receiving this prophecy was a daughter who um, unfortunately passed away um, very early on. The opponents of the Messiah thought, you know, the prophecy has failed. He was supposed to have a son. Nowhere does it say that the next child will be that son. Mm. And nowhere does it say that a specific child of the Messiah will be that, okay. that promised son. What happened? I presume the real test is to see what the qualities of that son is, whoever that is. Exactly. That's what you've got to look out for, not just the son being born. Exactly, because that's part of Iman bil Ghaib as well, that obviously there has to be some sort of um, hidden truth or hidden doubt to any prophecy. If anything was as clear-cut so that everyone was able to see it and no one was able to mm. doubt it, then that would uh, make the whole point of prophecy redundant. And, and historically, all prophecies have been like that, where people have to search a bit more yeah. than they actually do. Exactly. Uh, and, and this applies to all the prophets. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Uh, like the Holy Prophet, uh, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, for example, his opponents used to say, bring us a sign from heaven. Mm. And he said, I'm, uh, I'm just a man. A human being, yeah, yeah. I'm just a human be yeah, being. Yeah. So, if uh, Allah had so will, he would have created angels as prophets. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, what happened next was that a son was born mm. and the Prophet named him Bashir, right? And he might have thought that this boy could potentially be that promised son, but... He didn't outright uh, claim that this is definitively that boy. Uh, the problem was that Bashir passed away um, early, Bashir the first. He passed away early. This is the, what you were yes. mentioning, yes. yeah. And the words of the prophecy, the reason I read out the words of the prophecy is because the words of the prophecy mention that he will come as a guest. So the prophecy actually mentions two, two sons. Okay. The first son would come as a guest, right? And this guest had come and he was pure and he was all of those traits, he was innocent. And he passed away in, in infancy. And the Islamic belief is that when a child is born, they're born pure, they're free of sin, unlike the Christian belief, which is that 
uh, you have to give up your sins. Mm. Uh, so Islamic thought mm. is different, and exactly. hence why the pure birth is signifying to someone who's only come for a short period, yeah. but dies of pure, and that's the first son, and hence the two names as well, possibly Emmanuel and Bashir. And Bashir. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and that boy passed away, and again, the opponents, um, they made a mockery out of it, and mm. because they were going to, they didn't have those faculties to understand the, the sign itself. Uh, again, the promised sign, and he clarified as well afterwards that he never outrightly said that this is ex- this is definitively that boy mentioned in that mm. prophecy. Um, and after that boy in... 1889, the Promised Messiah um, and, well, his wife gave birth to Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, who was the second caliph of the um, Promised Messiah and who eventually become, yeah. went on to become Muslim. Yeah. But he yeah. didn't, yeah, okay, we can get to that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, knowing that the progeny would be, have all these great qualities, secular knowledge, spiritual knowledge, did the Promised Messiah then put in place a very high standard of education for his children so that they could achieve that level of uh, what the prophecy was claiming of this high quality individual, yeah. which will be exceptional? Yeah. Right? If I wanted my children to do that, I would certainly be looking for the best school and college yeah. and make sure that they get to that place to achieve that. Exactly. You'd expect them to, right? Yeah. You'd, you'd want to yeah. invest in that. So but did the Promise Messiah do that? The promise, actually, the Promise Messiah <laughs> Islam uh, didn't to, to that great standard. There were some tutors and stuff, but mostly he'd teach him a little bit by himself. But the real um, interesting point here is that as a Muslim, um, as a child, he was very sickly. Um, he was ill a lot of the times. He used to have some um, uh, ail- ailment, uh, illness in his eye. Right. And he was not able to really pursue studies properly. So he did not receive a formal education. Okay. Right? So, so no education, you could say, almost. Pretty much no yeah, education. Yeah. Right? Uh, he was, whatever he learned was just very basic, very fundamental, right? Like, for example, how, how to read the Quran and these kind of things. Yeah. But other than that, you can in no way prove that he had been given any scholastic type of tutoring from a young age which prepared him for a future role. So he was pretty much, I won't say uneducated, but uh, there's nothing wrong with that either because uh, Ummi Yun, uh, the illiterate prophet, was the holy prophet, the master absolutely. prophet. Absolutely. Um, peace and blessings of Allah be upon yeah. him. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Yeah. And that just proves that any knowledge that they did receive afterwards was from God Almighty. And sometimes, in fact, that becomes the proof that uh, people could accuse, well, he's had all this education, this is why he's this, when there is no education. And yeah. In the case of the holy prophet, he was illiterate. Yeah. Uh, you know, that in itself is a sign that someone can be achieved such heights exactly. without having any education at all. Um, in terms of his learning, uh, some of those were handed over to Hazrat Mawi Nuruddin, the first caliph. Not that it wasn't the caliph at the time, yeah. but uh, Hazrat Mawi Nuruddin was a hafiz. He's, I yes. think, comes from a line of family of hafiz, yeah. and he was well established. So he he spent some time with the the first caliph, did he, he not? Yeah, he did. Um, essentially, the first caliph, Hazrat Hakim Malvi Nuruddin Sahib, he took um, Hazrat Muslim Adu, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Sahib, under his wing from early on. Um, uh, the first caliph was a Hafiz, as you mentioned. He was uh, from the progeny of Hazrat Umar, the second caliph of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. A descendant from him. A yeah? descendant, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, he was also a tabib, um, a herbal um, doctor, um, and he was generally considered one of the greatest authorities of hadith um, in India at the time. Mm. He was a, he's a great scholar. 
before he accepted the Prophet Islam, he was just considered one of the greatest scholars by Muslims in general. Then he accepted the Prophet and essentially he accepted someone to be greater than him. Mm. Now, he had a special bond with Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, Sahib Razi Al-Anhu. So much so that before his Khilafat, so during the lifetime of the Prophet Messiah, um, he used to look after him, he used to teach him things. But then, especially during his Khilafat, um, he had um, Hazrat Muslimah under his wing and, um, you know, Hazrat Muslimah was uh, partaking in various activities and various um, projects at the time and he was doing so under the guidance of the first Khalifa. For example, he established the group Tashheedul Adhan, which means sharpening of the minds, mm-hmm. um, which was essentially a youth group to begin with, but then it turned out to be a, a regularly publishing magazine. Where at, at what age roughly was would he have been at that time? Really, any idea? I think seventeen. 17 yeah, okay. between seventeen and twenty-five. Okay. All of this happened because that was uh, the Prophet Islam passed away when Azamusmad was seventeen, and um, the first Caliph 19. passed away. Nineteen is when the when the Prophet Messiah passed away. He was nineteen when the Prophet Messiah passed away. Twenty-five yes. when then, Khalifa yes. passed away. and then Khalifa passed away six years later. Yes, yeah, twenty-five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's correct. Uh, yeah, so between those times, um, he he started publishing that, and then he was he was the editor for that for Tashid al Adhan, right? A, a young man. Yes, right. Yeah, and he was writing very scholarly articles already. Mm. So he was being guided, even though he didn't have that that extreme formal education as a child. But at this age, he was brought under the wing of um, Hazrat Khalifa Avil. Mm. And it's interesting because uh, he did learn a lot from Hazrat Khalifa Avil, but there were also uh, many, not, I wouldn't say many instances, but some um, points of disagreement with regards to, uh, you know, uh, uh, with regards to some, some knowledge. And, right. and those kind of uh, points, points are quite interesting as well for anyone who has this scholastic type of taste in, in, mm. in reading. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't anything like uh, anything that would break the bond. That proves further that their bond was so strong that even though sometimes they would disagree with some points, which, by the way, is also the case with the Khulafai Rashidin, with the rightly guided caliphs, um, sometimes Hazrat Abu Bakr would make a decision, would give a fatwa, and Hazrat Umar would just walk up to him and say, you're wrong, the Quran says this. And if Hazrat Umar was right, Hazrat Abu Bakr would change his mind and say, yeah, you're right, actually, that's true. Mm. Hazrat Ali would do that quite often as well with the rest of the Khulafa. And they welcome people questioning them as well. Hazrat Ali particularly was very good at that. It's not just Khulafa. I mean, this is part of uh, Muslim teaching that you can take objections, and if they they are valid, yeah. then you change them. Hazrat Umar, I know, um, in the case of, uh, uh, what is it, dowry, yeah. he changed his position on the objection of a woman who said that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, um, or the Quran doesn't say that we can do this. Yeah. And he changed his position exactly. because of that. Exactly. So, you know, we are very open mm. uh, as a community, and we should be, and this is what Islam teaches, to absorbing differences and to change if those differences um, uh, seem to be valid. I sometimes feel that the real education comes from when you start challenging, when you, you're given the opportunity to have a different view, mm. right, for you to, to, to understand better. Mm. You know, they say you learn from your mistakes. Sometimes, yeah. you know, when you challenge something, you get to get to know the bigger picture mm. before mm. you understand it fully. So, yeah. indeed, very and, welcome. And one of the things that I found interesting when we, we review the life of the Holy the uh, the promised son and his relationship with the the first who the person who later became the first caliph is the first caliph actually asked invited him to build on what the promised messiah had actually taught 
not to just regurgitate that. Yeah, mm. so that was you know to have that yeah. exploratory visionary yes, look yes. for, looking forward to a visionary mm. future. Really, yeah, yeah. what we encourage. But then, what about uh, talk about his education? What yeah. about his school education? How how did the although he didn't have a fully acquired school education, but he did have some. How did he achieve? How did the second caliph uh, do in, in school? Was he a good student there? Because he was going to be, if you know what the prophecy was saying, man of great knowledge and secular and spiritual knowledge. How was the school uh, looking well, at him? He himself says that there was not a single day. I mean, like uh, Imam Daniel said, not a single day in which he says that I did not suffer from uh, one ailment or another. Um, yet, despite this, um, uh, God granted me health and kept me alive in order to fulfill this prophecy. And he goes on to say uh, that I did not attain any secular knowledge. So mm. as far as school is concerned, yeah. he himself says that I did not attain any secular knowledge. Yet God Almighty sent down his angels. This is he, him saying this. Yeah. His angels in order to bestow that knowledge to me and instill such knowledge of the Holy Quran with me mm-hmm. that no human could have ever perceived the knowledge that God Almighty granted to me and the spiritual fountain that flowed within me was not a result of my own thoughts or ideas. Rather, it is so comprehensive and sound that I issue a challenge to the entire world that if there is anyone on the face of the earth who claims that God Almighty taught him the knowledge of the Holy Quran, then I am uh, ever ready to challenge such an individual. So he he claims that there's no secular No secular education at all. No school ed- education, yeah. no conventional education. Yeah. That is something that was infused yeah. um, in him uh, from on high through angels. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, uh, about his election now, um, so we know the upbringing, he didn't have much education, but he was taught, he was under the wing of the first caliph. Yeah. And in fact, the, when the first caliph was uh, elected caliph, uh, he said, look, uh, he went and uh, when his name was proposed, hmm. that he should leave, he said, look, let me pray about this. Uh, and then he came back uh, and he said, look, I don't know why you want me to be your leader, but you know there are three people in the progeny of the promised Messiah who should get this position, and, he, and uh, the second name he proposed was the second caliph, uh, yeah. the, the son. Um, so he was already looked upon by the first caliph as someone of great, and he's only 17 at the time, yeah. right? and he was looking at him as a spiritual leader as, as a, to lead the community. Exactly. Uh, so so when the second like, caliph was elected, how did that come about? Was he appointed to be a caliph, or was there an election, uh, and who, who voted, or who, who nominated? Yeah, so... Um, you're correct in that in that regard that uh, he was he was quite young at the time, but despite that he was considered to be a, uh, to have the cap- capabilities of being a spiritual leader. He was actually elected um, to his office. Um, the first caliph, Rizalanhu. There are narrations that when the first caliph Rizalanhu was um, ill, he he did write down on a, on a piece of paper that you know uh, the next caliph should be Mirza Mahmud Ahmed. Um, uh, but that didn't come to light until you know after he had passed away, and then there was a, a proper election. And with the, with regards to the election, the majority of the people mm-hmm. did vote for the second caliph, Rizalanhu. There was a small group, um, especially some senior members of the Anjuman, which is uh, essentially the administrative board of the community. They uh, abstained f- 
from voting, and they had issue with with the whole voting. Was was Muhammad Ali and Khwaja Kamaluddin amongst those people who abstained from from this? Yes. Okay. So so they were the essentially you can call them the ringleaders or the yeah, yeah, yeah. the the just leaders of that group. Instigators. Instigators. <laughs> yeah. And and they they had issues with the concept of Khilafat even during the um, caliphate of the first caliph. Yes. yes. So yes. it was just an ongoing issue, and then when it came to the election of um, the second Khalifa, mm. that was like the the final straw that broke the camel's back. I think we discussed some of that in our last show when, when we had Declan. Yeah, on we the did. Show, didn't yeah, we? yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, the, so he was elected. He was elected by whom? Uh, by the community. It was a consensus. Okay. Essentially, yeah. All right. Um, okay. Oh, consensus or election? It was a. <laughs> <laughs> it was an election uh, by majority. He was he was chosen by majority. So there was a consensus of the of the of, of, the, of, of the, the majority, of, yeah, a majority consensus that he should okay. be the okay. Because essentially, the the other group at that point had sp- uh, officially split away. Mm. So whoever had remained was the consensus was the sure. Ijma who had yeah. agreed. Now coming to the prophecy itself, the, we read out and you read out as well that he would have secular knowledge, he would have spiritual knowledge, he would have high status, high high stature. Yeah. Um, Before we move on to that, do, yeah. you, do you mind if we just uh, go a bit deeper into this split? Yeah, go on, because go on, I remember yeah. in that last program with uh, Declan, yeah. um, we did touch upon it, but there's some really interesting, um, really interesting material I came across oh, good. recently. We did say we want to come back on that, don't didn't we? And, and yeah. we will look into some other things as well. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, please, that, that would be very interesting. So, so what happened here? And and this was a lot of this was new information for me as well. And I don't, oh, I don't think that this is um, that widely known. Like we know the main events, we know what um, tra- uh, transpired, and we know you know how it eventually uh, concluded. But there are some uh, minute details in between which we might not know. For example. Uh, so when they had split, Mawlid Muhammad Ali, yeah. um, he wrote this whole treatise and um, it's called The Split, right? It was written in English and he was giving his account of this whole uh, split of the community mm. at the election of the second caliph. He uh, tries to give this um, this brief introduction to why uh, this was bound to happen. This was essentially decreed to happen. It was fate. Because he says that um, the same thing happened with Judaism and Christianity. He said that uh, Christianity, uh, when St. Paul took over the teachings of Christianity, a corrupted version of Judaism essentially branched off, right? He makes a valid point, but... He makes a valid point, right. But in the wrong context. (laughs) Because he makes that very valid point, but then he tries to say that it's the Ahmadiyam Qadiani Jamaat, the Jamaat of the uh, second caliph yeah. which is that form of Christianity which yeah. is corrupted and which has right. um, you know branched off okay. from the main essentially Judaism as a Muslim he responds in in such such an eloquent and beautiful manner like yeah. you can't even imagine right so he he says you're right um, there is a resemblance between Christianity and Ahmadiyyat you're right but he says, but you have to look at things a bit deeper. There is a resemblance between the um, Mohammedan dis- dispensation and the Mosaic dispensation, absolutely no doubt. And in the same way, um, the, dispen- the dispensations of both of their messiahs, the groups, communities of both their messiahs would also hold a lot of resemblance. Absolutely right. He says, but the difference comes with regards to the status of both of the dispensations. You cannot say that um, the status of the uh, Islamic dispensation was equal to that of the uh, Jewish dispensation because a lot of the followers of Moses um, they renegated renegated in his own life when he went onto the mount right yeah. um, and then even though they came back they consistently kept uh, 
you know, leaving his side and disobeying, yeah, right? As especially after his death, then you know they were they went off on on their own way, right? In 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 comparison, we have the community of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, his ashab, his companions. The majority of them, almost all of them, stuck with the teachings of the Pro- Holy Prophet, mm. peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, even after his death, right? He says so. There's a difference in in the in the stature of both of these uh, groups. And he said, because of that, there would be a difference in the uh, status of both of the communities of the Messiahs as well, yeah. right? Yes, Jesus' um, followers, the majority of them, went astray, right? Only a select minority were um, st- still on the right path, which was um, from, through the brother of Jesus, um, James, and his small community, which is pretty much non-existent anymore. He says, but the community of the Messiah, of of Muhammad, the peace and blessings of all the people on him, because it's it's a reflection of the community of the Holy Prophet and his companions, the majority here would be on the right path and a, mon- and a minority would split away, right? Mm. And he says, so there we have the majority, the Qadiyani Jamaat, which stuck on the right path, and we have a minority, the Lahori Jamaat, and it's still true to this day, they are a complete minority in comparison to our community. Um, they went off on the wrong way. He gives another um, comparison. He says, he says, the whole issue arose in... In early Islam, the whole issue of the great big split in the beginning, the Sunni and Shia split, began um, in the time of the caliphate of Hazrat Ali. He was Hazrat Ali and he, he gives this um, comparison. He says he was a son-in-law of the Holy Prophet or in a way you could say he was a son of the Holy Prophet. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And he says the split in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community happened during the caliphate of the son of the promised Messiah al-Islam as well. A great comparison again, yeah. right? It was at the yeah. times of the yeah. sons of the both prophets that yeah. these splits were occurring. Um, so that was a really good point um, that he made as well with with regards to this whole split. Then he goes on to uh, talk about so Malvi Muhammad Ali mentioned three issues um, that he had with three uh, with the aqidah with the theology that um, the Muslim held, and he said, you know, I have issue with this. Um, uh, you know, for example, you call everyone a kafir who doesn't accept the promised Messiah. And Hazrat Muslim, um, you know, rebutted all of those. And he said, look, anyone who doesn't accept um, a prophecy uh, or a person who fulfills a prophecy of God Almighty is essentially rejecting God Almighty. So in that sense, he is a kafir of, of God Almighty, right? But he says, so Mawli Muhammad Ali concludes the book, right, the split. Um, it's an English book again, yeah. right? That's a very important point. He concludes the book by saying that my only intention with writing this book is so that the general Ahmadis of the Qadiyani Jamaat, they ponder over these points and really reflect with a pure heart and make a decision. As a Muslim, he, he responded to all of this in a book called Aina, Aina Sadaqad. Okay. Is that he also wrote a book, The Truth About the Split? That's as well. uh, so that's Aina Sadaqad. Okay, right. When it was translated into English, that was called The Truth uh, yeah, About the Split. And he actually describes, um, he, he says that, you know, even the intention, the conclusion of Mawlid Muhammad Ali, the author, the intention is questionable because he says that he wrote this book with the intention of um, uh, of making it available to the majority of Ahmadis to see the truth. Mm. He says, well, it's a funny thing because he wrote it in English and the majority of the community of the Prophet <laughs> is illiterate in English. They don't even know English, mm. right? They know Urdu or Punjabi. So they can't even access that material. So that intention in itself 
is void, mm. right? Um, it doesn't make any sense. Misleading. It's misleading. Mm. So essentially, he just re- rebutted that whole thing. It's really interesting if you read the split and then you read the truth about the split. It's a really interesting. Yeah. It's two perspectives of that same incident where you see, yeah. um, you know, who's who's got the upper hand. I do okay. remember reading uh, extracts of that, uh, the truth about the split, where the uh, second Khalifa says that during the life of the promised Messiah, uh, at Jalsa Salanas, I used to give speeches about the truth of the prophethood of, Prof- of uh, Azhar Masih And Muhammad Ali and Khwaja Kamaluddin were on stage listening to my speeches and not once did they ever object to what I had said. So uh, this highlights that. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, thank. That was a good inter- interjection mm. there. Some, mm. Will you do come in with any further okay. information, facts, <laughs> or questions? Right. <laughs> right. No, we'll do. Um, with regards to the, this uh, resemblance to the mosaic uh, prophet, right, the, the Musa, for example, one of the things that uh, I remember Khalifa Rabbi saying, and maybe you can enlighten us on this, Philip, is that prophets, when they come, are in the minority, and because of the truth, and against all the odds, they grow bigger and wider, and get accepted. That is part of the truth, because they start from small, everyone against them, all odds against them, and yet they come victorious and become... The Lahori Jamaat was the opposite, in the sense they took the, much of the wealth from Qadian, they took many of the senior followers, and slowly over time, they have diminished in number, while we have grown exponentially by comparison. So that in itself is a, a very true. Truthful. Yes. So we know that uh, when in the early days of the split, we know that uh, uh, there were hardly anything left in the uh, treasury. Much of the uh, wealth, I don't think it was too much, but still, whatever there was, whatever was, 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 was taken away by mm. by the Lahori uh, contingent. Yeah. And uh, they were also, uh, in the Lahori contingent, members that were considered to be intellectuals, well-educated, MAs and uh, BAs. The Lahori group still claim that, Mm, that we have a lot of high intellects in our community. Right. So, uh, uh, apparent uh, uh, intellectualists Mm. Mm, was not uh, there as far as the... um, the Qadiani group was concerned, yeah, right? Yeah. But uh, they had uh, the truth with them. And uh, they, they were also mocked. I remember uh, reading that uh, they talked about uh, the Qadian, the uh, Lahori uh, contingent when they were leaving, some of them. They were mocking uh, the, uh, the Qadianis about uh, certain institutions mm. that they said would be, I think there was a school, but uh, Imam Daniel will know better. There was a school or a college. They said this would soon be in the hands of the opponents of the uh, the community. Mm. But uh, things uh, were uh, as time progressed. Uh, the everything was transformed completely. completely. And uh, and even if you look at the Shah Jahan Mosque, which was under their leadership, but under the Muhammad Ali, Muhammad eventually went to the Sunni. So in fact, they lose lost their uh, what they had their hands yes. on to the non Ahmadis yes, uh, yes. itself rather than yeah. us. And we've grown in numbers everywhere. Mm. Uh, Daniel, uh, he was supposed to be a great spiritual guide. This is one of the things. Uh, during his tenure, he, he faced many challenges. We talked about the split. Mm. Okay, that was one challenge. Uh, 
Uh, and what what about uh, other challenges? And how did you hold that community together? Because we leave that just outlined. These were precarious moments. Yeah. Right for the Jamaat, they could have just dissipated to nothingness. Yeah, exactly. As as in the biggest, well, I wouldn't say the biggest, but one of the biggest challenges was clearly right at the onset of his Khilafat, which was the split, as we've just um, discussed. Um, there were a lot of other challenges as well. Uh, we're talking about uh, spiritual yeah, contributions because, here, yeah, right? Because facing those challenges, he yeah. established a strong community. This is what we're getting to. How did he achieve that? Yeah, he did. Um, so there were. It, it depends. Um, the question, sorry, the question is not clear to me in the sense that are we talking about what kind of organisations he established within the group, or was he? Because if we're talking about his spiritual um, contributions to yeah. the Jamaat, uh-huh. um, with regards to that, there's there's a lot to say. There's uh, yeah, but, but there were challenges, weren't there? I mean, there was there were uh, oppositions that uh, that were raised. Yes. And then uh, there were challenges for the community as a whole, yeah. uh, as a whole partition, for instance. Yeah, yeah. So uh, because the point I'm making is yeah. that if 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 those challenges weren't yeah. tackled, yeah, the community would have uh, slowly broken up. No, no. Right? Of course, I, so I agree how, with that. Yeah. So how did that? Because ultimately, we're a spiritual Jamaat. Yeah, yeah. So how did that spirituality, strength of spirituality, right. maintain him holding that community together and establish it to what what, what it got? Okay, to? got it. Sorry, my only confusion yeah. was that um, because a lot of a lot of these challenges had some. Uh, political or yeah. um, secular uh, foundations, yeah, no, no. right? Uh, because of that, yeah, no, I'm avoiding that side at the right, moment. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, uh, one huge challenge that he faced um, a few years after his Khilafat was in uh, about 1933, roughly around that that time period, and that's when the Majlis Arar movement um, became extremely, mm. extremely active uh, in the opposition and persecution against the. Uh, community. This is a Hindu organization led by the Arya Samaj? No, no. Majlis Ahrar move, okay. movement was a Muslim. It's a, it was oh, okay, an extremist, okay. fundamentalist right. type Muslim movement, um, staunchly opposed to uh, Ahmadis. And, yeah. Yeah. They were essentially, the best way to describe them is they were the predecessors of the Khatman Abu'ad movement. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and they were constantly always just trying to get um, in the way of uh, the Jamaat and uh, in the way of Khalifa al-Masiyah. With regards to um, a lot of his uh, secular endeavors as well, which we'll go on to speak about in yeah. a bit, um, they kept trying to, um, you know, interfere and kept trying to topple him and, uh, you know, uh, stop his influence. But it, it got um, so bad that they literally claimed that um, like that we will um, absolutely decimate, decimate Qadian, yeah, total right? destruction. Of yeah. Them, yeah, and that actually. The opponents thought that this was going to be a huge blow to the Jamaat, that you know, Muslim, the Ahmadis mm-hmm. will get scared and they will leave the side of their caliph and everything, and that the Jamaat will become weaker. Actually, this this had the complete opposite effect um, because that actually allowed us, the Muslim to contemplate on the fact that, okay, they want to destroy us in Qadiyah, and they think that if they destroy Qadiyah, they will destroy the Ahmadiyya Jamaat. Mm. You know what? I'll turn this on them. I will send out missionaries to the rest of the world so that. It doesn't matter if you destroy one place, right? The Ahmadiyya Jamaat will, will flourish um, in all parts of the world. That's when he really began in earnest, in like a lot more um, consistent um, and official manners. To so he saw, the, he saw the bigotry of the clerics of the time. Yeah. And to tackle that, if we spread the community around the world, their impact would be less impactful. Exactly. Foresightedness. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And even if, take for example, even if, uh, God forbid, they had managed to uh, destroy Qadian, right? 
with missionaries uh, all abroad, right, in in all over the world, mm. right, uh, the destruction of Qadian wouldn't have meant the end, end of, of Ahmadiyat, yeah, yeah. right? So that was a really, um, you know, a, a really great move that Hazrat Muslim mm. um, made at the time. And it was actually, those were seedlings for what we see now, us sitting here in London in the Battle of Tool Mosque, um, you know, the administrative uh, building of the UK Jamaat, which was established way back in 1913, right? Mm. And there have been... a uh, constant missionaries here. Uh, there have been missionaries in America, most famously Mufti Muhammad Sadiq Sahib. Uh, there have been missionaries all over Africa and all over um, uh, even Sri Lanka and even other Asian countries and Arab countries as well. Mm. So he achieved two things with that, in my view. Tell me if I'm wrong, Willie, and uh, Imam Daniel, that uh, at the death uh, of his father, uh, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, he said that if even if the whole world was to leave you, hmm. I will... St- maintain your message and spread it around the world. Yeah. So th- yeah. this act yeah. was fulfillment of that promise he made. Mm-hmm. So he's true to his word. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. And number two, that uh, he saw the foresightedness yeah. of spreading the message around the world, which is another prophecy of the promised Messiah, that I shall mm. cause, uh, cause thy message to the, 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 the corners of the earth. Yeah, yeah. So he was fulfilling those words to his father, yeah. Yeah. to the promised Messiah, to, to the letter. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then there were other challenges as well. Eventually, the the partition, as Walid Saab mentioned, mm. that was a huge challenge, logistically, politically, but also spiritually for the Jamaat because they were losing their um, their homeland, their headquarters of Qadian. In a way, they were losing it to to India mm. because the Muslim nation, Pakistan, initially in the borders, it was said that Qadian and Gurdaspur will be part of Pakistan. But then, yeah, as a last minute um, decision it was decided that Qadian would not be in, in Pakistan. And that was a huge blow at the time um, that Ahmadis fell to, to them. Um, but as a Muslim, who managed that whole scenario um, with such composure and such um, uh, professionalism that he uh, managed to take the majority of his community and migrate to the new um, state, Pakistan. Yeah, and even he even founded a brand new city in, in a completely barren yeah, and desolate okay, place yeah, yeah. Um, called Ravana and that's still flourishing as it is still the administrative head or uh, headquarters of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community mm-hmm. to this day so he kept that he kept the uh, community together in in those matters in the administrative matters as well in with regards to the Markaz we call it the Markaz yeah. uh, headquarters as well that he was able to move from Qadian to Ravana but he didn't completely abandon Qadian because he also left 313, 313 members, men, yeah. the Rishani Qadian, mm-hmm. to look after them. Absolutely. The what about, the uh, the, uh, you mentioned about spreading around the world. Uh, he visited London, right? He did. What, what was achieved? Well, maybe even will lead her some insight about uh, his activities in London. What yes. sort of things were so achieved? Uh, this this uh, was uh, based on an invitation that he accepted. In the uh, to the World Conference of Religions, right. So he was going to be representing Islam. Um, so his lecture so to be invited, yes, as a the speaker for Islam from India. Yes, he must have had some sort of reputation, presumably. But uh, yes, so uh, he was. Yes, he may have been a renowned <laughs> scholar at that time. I'm yeah, not. Uh, I'm not. It was quite early certain. in his uh, Khilafat, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he, six years after he yes, was elected. Six years. Yes. Seven years. After so um, no, ten yeah, six years. Ten, ten, ten years. Nineteen oh eight. So no, he. Nineteen fourteen. Nineteen fourteen. Ten years. Sorry. So that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so he's what thirty-five mid thirties. And um, his lecture was uh, read by Sir Chaudhry Zafullah Khan, 
and uh, it received uh, um, well, it was well, very well received. Uh, he was praised for what he was able to deliver, and that particular lecture was expanded and published into a book later on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and during the course of that visit, he, he came to Southfields and laid the foundation stone of the the Fuzzle Mosque, mm-hmm. uh, the first mosque in London. In London, yeah. Uh, I think the second mosque in the UK. In the UK, yeah. Okay, purpose-built yeah. mosque yeah. in the UK. Yeah. Um, and that mosque was opened uh, two years afterwards okay. uh, in 1926. So there is a special relationship mm. that we we have in the UK with the with the second. And, and was his visit uh, recognized in in Britain by the community, the the, the press well, or the Path politicians? News. Path and News certainly uh, covered it. Right. Uh, other newspapers also covered it. Yeah. Um, and they also covered the the foundation, the laying of the foundation stone of the right. of the London Mosque. And Bethany News covered a lot of stuff that he did. Yes, Bethany well, yes, News was this, like the BBC World Service of the time. Mm. Mm. You know, absolutely. And okay. it wasn't yeah. just um, Britain that covered this, because he he made stops on the way in various countries, yeah. right? Because obviously he travelled by ship. Um, he stopped in a lot of Arab countries as well, mm. and then he also uh, visited Paris at the time. Um, he visited the Grand Mosque of Paris, and he prayed there. There's photos of that as well, and there's newspaper uh, publications, right, like front page publications saying um, in French, Khalifa yeah. uh, Masih visits Paris. And it's, it, there's a lot at the office I work at. We've got all of those clippings. There's a lot of press um, publications of him, and that actually uh, proves the truthfulness of the prophecy of the part of the prophecy that his name will be known throughout the world. He he will be um, extremely famous right. uh, throughout the world. Uh, now the, the the prophecy mentions about his achievements, uh, recognition, fame, and all that type of thing. Uh, in terms of spirituality, I think we've covered some aspects of the secular aspects of it. Although there's a lot more to cover, I know. But on the secular side, uh, spiritual side, what would be the, some of the great achievements uh, that uh, that you could put him in recognition of of having done this? I think one of the greatest um, spiritual achievements of his. Um, his essentially his magnum opus would be the commentary of the Holy Quran, Tafsir Kabir, uh, which is a ten-volume commentary um, of the Holy Quran. And what's interesting with with this commentary is that so uh, the Jamaat has compiled a commentary of the Holy Quran by the Promised Messiah, which was taken from um, all of his writings mm-hmm. and then just put together, right? And that really heavily emphasizes and focuses on the spiritual aspect of the Quran, right? The spiritual nature and metaphorical side of the Quran. With regards to Tafsir Kabir, any uh, person, even in this day and age, would find it extremely uh, interesting and fun to read because uh, there's a lot of not just there is there is a lot of spiritual um, uh, commentary in there as well, but there's a lot of secular commentary in it as well. So, for example, he, he mentions um, he mentions Napoleon a few times, you know, um, some expeditions of Napoleon or mm. some expeditions of uh, maybe a Roman emperor or, you know, a lot of historical mentions are made in, in, yeah. in that commentary, which make it a really enjoyable thing. And also with regards to the Urdu itself, it's uh, it's quite easily digestible and oh, right. uh, okay. able to read. So that's, that's one. The other one uh, would be um, the five-volume commentary, which is an English... Uh, commentary of the Holy Quran, uh, and that was put together by his companions using his his knowledge and his tafsir as a as a basis. So that can be attributed to himself as well. And then he had the the short commentary, the tafsir al-sahir as well of the Quran, uh, which is just footnotes. Um, but that's quite uh, you know that's quite spiritually mm-hmm. refreshing as well to read. Um, so obviously that's just with regards to the Quran. Uh, he he established um, the newspaper Al Fazl, which 
to this day is being published in the Jamaat. Uh, through that newspaper, he was disseminating um, knowledge, um, uh, sermons, and any type of and, updates. And it attracted a lot of uh, external readers, Christians and others as well, didn't it? Yeah, it, it did, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, in terms of the message of Sirius Aguirre here, uh, Kabir, sorry, uh, the opposition even recognized this work. Uh, I think the, the Mandal, I think, was uh, yes. one of the newspapers who wrote about this. What did they say? Well, they said that, um, um, they said, yes, you're right, uh, Zamindar, uh, Malwi Zafar Ali Khan, uh, his newspaper, while addressing the opponents of the Khalifumsi, he said, uh, listen carefully, you and your followers will never be able to com- compete with uh, Mirza Mahmood Ahmed. Mirza Mahmood has the Quran and he has got knowledge of the Quran. What have you got? You have not read the Quran even in your dreams. Mirza Mahmood has got a community with him which is ready to sacrifice everything they have at his slightest hint. Mirza Mahmood has got a party of preachers, experts in different fields. In every country of the world, he has established his dominion. That covers it all. Yes. <laughs> Not just a spiritual achievement. This is by an opponent. Yeah, this is exactly. written by an opponent, yeah. right? So what better epitaph yes. than, than, than that, that? That covers the prophecy in all various... I know there's so many other things to cover, and we haven't got time, unfortunately. We've got mm-hmm. Shahid waiting to join us with the sports as well. I'm just going to ask you one last question. In light of what's happening currently in the Middle East, etc., Israel was created during the lifetime of his uh, tenure as Khalifa. Yeah. Did the second Khalifa, the Mizab Ahmad, ever comment about Israel uh, and its creation? Did he give any advice at the time? Uh, if he was the that Khalifa of that great vision, yeah. surely yeah. he would have said something. He did. There was a lot that he uh, said and did at the time with regards to the Palestinian cause and uh, with regards to the formation of Israel. I can't cover that in one minute. Um, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> we'll give you two. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think this, we, we need to discuss this in the next program okay. for sure. But so just, we, yeah. just um, yes. as a taster, uh, I'd like yes. to mention that uh, in 1939, there was a conference in, in London. The British government um, organized a conference for the Palestinians uh, here in London. And at that time, a lot of dignitaries from uh, many Arab countries uh, came over and... Uh, upon uh, the invitation of Maulana Jalaluddin Sham Sahib, who was the Imam of the Fuzz Mosque at the time, um, 200 delegates, including uh, Prince Faisal of Saudi Arabia at the time, mm-hmm. they came um, to Fuzzle Mosque, right? And uh, as a Muslim, he, he wrote um, an, a kind of a, a welcoming note, uh, which I'll read out next time, uh, which was pretty interesting. And then in 1946, he saw a vision, um, which he published in Al-Fazl, uh, titled Al-Indhar which is the warning and he said that a time is coming for the Muslim Ummah which will be a very very difficult time uh, for the uh, Muslim Ummah and uh, you know will be put to uh, test and trial and our unity will you, you know really be questioned at the time and this time is close and it will be a huge blow to the Ummah right and uh, two years later lo and behold the state of Israel is uh, created on the land of Palestine and then he, he goes on to say you know I, I warned you guys of this and then there's a whole uh, whole bunch of sermons and uh, visions and everything with regards to Israel and Palestine at the time and there were not just warnings there were also solutions there were solutions as well. as well yeah exactly I think that's a great topic to cover next time yes uh, so thank you very much uh, highly insightful we just again really they haven't done justice to the topic no. I'm afraid no. uh, 
at that time. It's, we, it's a 52-year khilafah that we need I to know, cover. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you did a great, grand job at that uh, in the highlight. And thank you, Waleed, for your contributions yeah. as well. Right, Waleed, your favorite part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Asalaamu Alaikum, Shahid. Yeah, we haven't spoken for a while. Uh, either you've been missing or I've been missing, but we're glad to be together again. Uh, and, and what a what a Sunday to meet again because lots going on. Uh, first of all, uh, the sad demise of Stan Bowles, very flamboyant, uh, a Rodney Marsh or a Hoddle type of a player, wasn't he? Oh, indeed, yes. I think uh, I wasn't aware of that his demise, but. Uh, Oh, he sorry. I have a friend. I just I just picked it up on the news this morning. Actually, no, it was a match of the day yesterday. Yeah, all right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Stan Bowles was one of these charismatic players, mm. uh, like you mentioned, in the mold of Hoddle and people like that who were fun to watch. And these are people that who put bumps in the seats at the time. Absolutely. And uh, not that he was very very um, uh, athletic in the sense of the. Uh, the players are required to be nowadays. Yeah. So, but his skills was outstanding, and I think he was an outstanding player to watch. Indeed. Uh, so sad demise of him, and uh, our commiserations to his family uh, and to the football world as well. Uh, coming on to the Premiership, before we come to the results, Manchester United got a new owner. Will you happy about that, Shahid? Um, <laughs> yeah, come on, come on. Comment on that. Come on, come on. Okay. He's got a lot of. He's got a lot of vision, hasn't he? Indeed, he has a lot of vision, but I think they were. I think everything depends on the results on the field is what matters to Manchester United. They are one, of the, well, one of the biggest clubs in the world, mm. and I think they have faltered recently, and they have a long way to go. And it seemed to be that they were on the path back again recently within the results that they had, but then they had this fall back again yesterday at a defeat at home against Fulham. Mm. So and uh, last minute matching goals and uh, indeed Fulham overcame them I think since the first time since a long time ago 1992 I believe last time they lost to them at home oh so uh, Manchester United I think in terms of uh, off the field they might be settling down hopefully but everything depends on the results on the field they didn't play that well either um, yesterday I mean indeed, they deserved I the 2-1 defeat it wasn't a, a last yes, minute that's uh, true. surprise I think in fact it could well have been more than 2-1. I think mm. the way Fulham played, I thought that uh, they were the outstanding side in that and uh, they, were, they were well worth their victory. Uh, Manchester City scraped a win against Bournemouth. Uh, do you think they're still uh, uh, odds on to win the uh, Premiership? Scraped. Well, Liverpool are topping the table. Let's uh, not forget that uh, by the point. But Manchester City do have this uh, knack of winning those games when it matters and their previous record and their... Uh, results in the past have shown that and the way that Arsenal faltered last year it well could well be that it's the teams that have done well in the past and it's that track record they keep saying that that matters and Liverpool also fighting on different fronts as well whereas Arsenal I think they had their first defeat in the in midweek in Sporto so but Arsenal team I think they might well be there at the end Okay, so you're tipping Arsenal then you think they have a better ch- I mean they are riding high they have a better chance than Liverpool I, I, Liverpool, I think, are a team in, in form, no doubt, but Arsenal seem to be... They're playing without fear at the moment. The way that they're scoring goals left, right and centre, and the way Saka is playing, five goals, consecutive goals that he scored in the Premier in five games, is outstanding. And the way they're playing, um, you're a, it's a three-man race, uh, three-horse three race, as well to say. But Arsenal and Man City and Liverpool are all there, and I think my feeling is that uh, although they're two points behind at the moment, Arsenal, then 
they're still waiting for me that it's all in home. You say it's a three-horse race. You're excluding Aston Villa from uh, from that. I think they they Aston Villa is, uh, eight points off the top at the moment. So whether or not they can catch up on that is another matter. But uh, I think the other three teams are a much stronger team in terms of squads as well as well as uh, their playing at the way they're playing at the moment. Mm-hmm. You think Tottenham will uh, get up to um, get up to the uh, well? Those uh, top four places for Champions League? They're in line for it. I think they uh-huh. are, but uh, yeah, my feeling is that they might miss out this year. But to be honest with you, I mean, the, the way that they have been playing, I mean, it's all very attractive football, but at the end, the results matter. And Villa are the teams that are actually putting together the results. And I think I, my feeling is that those top two, three, three teams that I mentioned, plus Villa, will be the top four in, mm. in the Champions League positions. Everton are not doing too badly, but do you think this this ten point uh, what penalty and another penalty likely to be handed out to them is a bit unfair? I think so. I, I mean, there's still that thing still dangling over Manchester City or whether or not they were in a similar situation. So those ten points, I mean, have actually the way they've been playing, uh, they really have impacted their their um, position. So one feels that it, that I think is sufficient. The ten point deduction should be suffice for them this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just one last comment on the Manchester United. When I sp- when I heard the interview, yeah, he's talking about a new stadium and everything else. More about money than the football itself, isn't it? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's a legacy, isn't it? It's the fact that they they want to be obviously successful off the pitch as well, but uh, in terms of I think getting people into the stadiums and so forth, and the following and that, it's always what matters is the, how the team is doing. Mm. The first team at that. Money talks. Well, they were. Yeah. He was talking about knocking yes. Manchester City yeah, and yeah, Liverpool yeah, off yeah, their yeah, perch. Yeah, I think yeah. he's got. He's got a, uh, I'm yes. sure. I'm sure. Uh, okay. What about the cricket? The Test match. Uh, England, after the first win, are up against it, and uh, looks like uh, the second Test is going the, against them third. as well. Third, third test. test. Sorry, third Test. Yeah, yes. Yeah. In fact, um, this. To be honest with you, uh, yeah, one or two, one. Yeah. So this will make it 3-1. If, uh, at the moment, like you said, that England uh, did a typical collapse against this morning. And from a good position, now they only got one. Uh, India 192 to get in the final inning. Mm. They've already knocked off 40 already. So they are um, odds on to win that game. And it will be the 16th consecutive home series for India to win at home. And they are the team that cannot be defeated at the moment. Since 2012, they've just not lost any game or oh. any series. And, and all this without Roy, Roy, uh, without Kohli? Ah, yes, too. Absolutely. Yeah, they're the main player. is not even there. Mm. So England have done well in the sense that they've that one victory. But I think the best ball is still playing on their mind and they're still not sure whether that's the way to go forward. A lot of, yeah, a lot of criticism about baseball now coming out of the press. It wasn't before. Well, one thing must be explained in the sense that England weren't winning without the baseball either, so it's, it's, yeah. no, diffi- it's no different to what it no was. So they yeah. have won some matches. Mm. So baseball is made attractive to watch and so forth. He has turned around cricket, let's put it, test cricket, and these uh, uh, Stokes and uh, McCallum. Yeah. So the, uh, as far as giving it to cricket is something that I think he has given it, but whether or not this is the way test cricket should be played mm. is still, I think, uh, to be found out. Bumrah wasn't playing either. Yeah, talking about Kohli yeah. not playing. Correct, yes. Yeah, uh, but the, but the spinners are uh, doing well, which is what Indian pitches have always been about, haven't they? Absolutely. And, um, the, all this thing about uh, in England not being able to play the spinners, I mean, they have been out so many times now as well. 
Mm. And it amazes me that a lot of these players are also playing in the Indian cricket. Now, IPL, I know, but yeah. uh, yeah. to be honest with you, they still can't get to terms with the pitches in India. At least T20, I don't think you can really <laughs> <laughs> develop your skills playing uh, <laughs> those test skills anyway. Uh, uh, PSL, uh, gaining momentum, lots of attracting, lots of players from abroad, England, New Zealand, South Africa, West Indies, Ireland, Australia, to name a few, Namibia. So they're doing well. So I think that's good for Pakistani cricket. Well, for Pakistan cricket, PSL, I think is the way forward for them in terms of getting attraction to the to the, to the fans of Pakistan who mm. are not able to get there, there otherwise. But as a whole, PSL has been this year has not been as attractive as in the past. Even the ticket sales before the tournament were not as hot as before, mm-hmm. and uh, you see that. I think this is a result of so many other uh, franchises going all over the world. Yes. And the players have now decided to pick and choose even the even the 2020 ones where they want to play. Mm-hmm. Whilst there are some outstanding players there in Pakistan, a lot have refused to go. And even to the IPL for that matter, some people have actually, some players have had to withdraw yeah. because of the fact that they're playing too much cricket. Indeed. Uh, Shahid, we come to the end. Thank you very much for your insights. And to our uh, guests, uh, Pete, Councillor Peter uh, Lamb and to Dr. Iqbal and to Imam Daniel Kalun for joining us. Thank you very much to our listeners. Thank you and our technical team. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>